Hello, everyone, and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we're delighted to be speaking with Adam Har Horowitz. Adam is an interstitial imp existing in between neuroscience, human computer interaction, and experiential art. Currently a PhD student at MIT, Adam comes from work in brain research studying mindfulness and mind wandering. Adam's work has been shown at Cannes, South by Southwest, the MFA, Transmedial, and more. His current projects include dystopian emotion spas, wearable electronics which actuate awe, applied brain science to make fairer prison policy, and dream control and capturing the liminal space between wakefulness and sleep. Adam, welcome. Thank you very much, Penny. So please do tell us about yourself and the work that you do at MIT. Sure. Um, I am a student in between um, neuroscience and engineering and art, which is a bit of a mess. But um, it's been useful for me if you want to understand and approach and influence um, experience. I think you do well to combine some of the quote-unquote um, objective uh, brain imaging pieces, um, some of the more uh, interventionist human-computer interaction pieces, and then some of the more exploratory, sensual, phenomenological sides of the artistic experience. Um, and so, yeah, I, I work in between those three and I'm really interested in overlooked intelligences um, at the moment. I'm interested in the intelligence of the body. I'm interested in what we mean by the unconscious or subconscious. And then I'm interested in kind of the, the ontologies and epistemologies that make us um, maybe not ask so many questions about those kinds of uh, quieter thinking. Um, and and that's, that's, that's kind of where I live right now. And my main focus is um, uh, dream incubation, um, which is kind of what it sounds like, kind of the inception thing, but in smaller, uh, more junky ways. And then the other project I'm focused on is a project which um, actuates uh, frisson, which is the shivers down your spine when... Huh the most important meaningful moment in a speech comes or the best piece of your song comes up and you get a shake of shivers and uh, we're actuating it through the body as opposed to um, through some kind of semantic experience. But I can tell you more if you're curious, but yeah, that's, that's, that's where I live. Oh my God. I mean, I guess that's what you have to live. Like you have to be in the intersection in order to be able to approach any of those issues. I mean, if we solely look at the brain, it is a combination of neuroscience and art. I guess we, there's so much we don't know about the brain and what you said in terms of like overlooked intelligence, I think that's super fascinating. And I want to want you to sort of go into it a little bit more depth than that. So there are, I mean, there's so much intelligence and technologies out there, right? And there are a lot of claims for many of them for being for our betterment. Um, and usually I think that betterment comes around like efficiency, time management, like how can we be better versions of ourselves? But it's kind of also ignoring so much of uh, the rest of us. Um, mm. And which I don't know if it's like mental well-being, things that happen in the subconscious, and there's a reason why, I guess, like in medicine, um, when we have something going on, min like a common answer is always like, oh, it's stress. But like, mm -hmm. like, why does that happen <clears throat> then? Like there is, it's more like symptom treatment rather than, you know, exploring in depth. So that's where you stand. So how, um, well, what would you say, I guess, like, first of all, in terms of the current, I guess, like digital technologies you see out there and what are they overlooking and what mm -hmm. are the potentials of going in, in more deep? Yeah, I think that's an important question. Um, there's a, a concept and a quote I like, um, this idea that in gazing down at atoms, um, we become atomized in our souls. This idea mm -hmm. that there's um, a hammer and a nail relationship. Um, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail, um, but an extended more cybernetic one, if you are the hammer and you are the nail, if you're using tools to define yourself, the narrowness which, with which you define yourself becomes the narrowness with which you can imagine the tool. Um, and I think there's a sort of sinister feedback loop there 
Um, my sense is that um, a lot of wearable electronics today um, do something like they read a study where when um, you show a hundred people um, a bunch of sounds from an affective library that are rated as very um, positive, joyous, um, yeah. you get some kind of EEG signature, which happens when those sounds are played. And it happens more than when some kind of negative affect sounds are played. And somebody reads that paper and says, that must mean that this is a EEG signature of happiness. Um, mm. But there's a big difference um, between something being necessary and something being sufficient, between something being a part and something being um, a chorus. And so the next step that usually happens is somebody then takes some kind of EEG and puts it on a bunch of people and says to them, you're happy and you're not looking for that signature. And so there's this funny uh, step where something is at first a correlate and then it becomes a definition and then it becomes a sort of cybernetic kind of self-awareness where mm -hmm. do I not have or do I have this specific signature? Um, and there's all kinds of problems either on the imaging or the averaging side that you can talk about. But even if there weren't those problems, the notion of the limits of a tool becoming the limits of a self, um, I think is a scary one. And so um, I read an article, for instance, in the Boston Globe um, recently where uh, uh, they're putting EEGs in a bunch of kids in, 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 in school to tell them if they're paying attention or if they're stressed or not, as if they were diagnostics. And hmm. there's this quote from this kid where he says, yeah, I put the EEG on and it told me I was really stressed. And I didn't think I was stressed, but it turns out I'm actually a really stressed person, um, which is an insane thing to say. But it's not insane if a scientist comes from MIT with a big flashy machine yeah. and it's got a lot of blinking lights and it tells you what you are. And who are you to speak against this authority figure with the white coat? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that for me, if I am worried about the world of wearables, I'm um, worried about how little people understand their deficits and how quickly their deficits can become our deficits. Hmm. That's um, so true. Or also our perceived deficits, right? Like as the- Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So it's perceived deficits, but they're also, um, if, we're, if we're in the mental space, you will have a very hard time drawing a line between perceived deficit and real one. Um, if you think about any, any field I'm thinking about, for instance, creative self-efficacy, how creative I think I am, is deterministic of my performance on creativity tasks. If some tool tells me I'm, a, I'm dull, then I'm, I'm, I'm sure as hell going to do worse next time around. And so I think that there's this difference between um, a tool which you need to know yourself versus something which opens a window and then trusts you with that window. And so right. there's, this, there's this quote by um, Dorothea Lange, the photographer, um, where she says, a camera is an instrument that teaches people how to see without a camera. Hmm. The point being, you look through the lens and you say, wow, look at the light. Wow, look at the shadow. Wow, look at the form. And um, then you take it, it away. And once you've been using your camera for a little while, you say, wow, look at the light, the shadow, the form. Um, you weren't noticing anything before until you framed it. And then you carry the frame with you, whether or not you have the camera. And I think that wearable technology can be that and is not that right now at all. Now it's optimization, efficiency, and scale as yeah. opposed to some kind of personalization introspection. Um, yeah. And yeah, that seems like a significant difference to me. And you actually touched upon something that I didn't think of much before. Like once you also, I mean, I didn't think of the bias or even like the placebo effect that you were like talking about, you know, like mm. you're given something and, you know, that's going to like measure my whatever. And then suddenly you're like, oh, you start to believe in that device just because you're wearing it. And so maybe a cool brand came up with it. So who am I to like judge this product? Mm. Um, and, or, you know, as you said, like a test or a tool tells me I'm that uh, I have like, I'm creative, I have great convincing skills or whatever. So that like confidence boost maybe helps me, you know, and I actually become that or maybe it demoralizes me to the point where I was actually going to be maybe really good at it and I'm no longer. Mm. So how does, how can such a study be done to get around that? Because it's so hard to 
get around the bias, especially when it's so like personal and customized, right? Like everybody could like see approach something and it's like some may see a wearable tech and be like very skeptical about it. And some can already be like, this is the thing that's going to change everything, you know? So the yeah. perceptions are already so different. How do you bring technology and do real exploration um, without like being confronted by all these like biases or personalities mm. or whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think I am in sort of the, the privileged position of not having a startup and not having to sell anyone my shit, which is nice. Um, sorry <laughs> yeah. if I can't curse. Um, no, it's true. Um, and, 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 and so I think that um, respect and humility and heterogeneity of approach is something which is manageable when um, I'm, you know, have a scholarship and a stipend. Um, yeah. And I think that that becomes a lot less true when you're trying to scale up a device. And so I think that people should expect when they're reading about what their Fitbit does or doesn't do and tracking their sleep or, yeah. or, when, they're, or when they're getting a smile tracker, which tells them how happy they are or how happy they're <laughs> not, um, which is a real thing. Um, I think they should have a sense of the motivations behind the studies um, that are supposedly objective evaluations of that thing. Um, and, 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 and I think to, yeah, your point, um, I think you don't get around it, um, but you can maybe bring a couple different angles to at least chop it up. Um, so in my work specifically, if I'm talking about dream work, um, yeah. I make it really clear um, to folks that their dream is their dream. Um, in the sense that I can reliably incubate a certain topic. Um, I feel pretty confident that if I take in a hundred people, um, the majority of them will have a dream about a fork. If I want them to have a dream about a fork, I have no idea what a fork will become. And that's, I think an interesting difference. Um, it will, for some people become a fork in the, the hand of the queen of England. And for some people, the, um, fork will be an earring. And for some people, the fork will be a catapult. Um, I don't know what it's going to become. And so I think there's um, a, a kind of handing off of agency, which is interesting and important in, kind of in, in the relationship between the uh, developer and the subject or customer. Um, and then there's, uh, uh, I think, a, a humility about the difference um, between mechanism and mind, um, where we say, I can give you some kind of insight about, for instance, when you're in a specific sleep stage. Mm -hmm. um, I know that in that sleep stage, you're more likely to have a certain kind of dream than another kind. Um, but I can't tell you who you are, or what you're going to become. And I think there's a real difference in saying, um, I can track dreams versus um, I can track changes in the body that tend to correlate with a certain kind of mind state. And then you're going to be there exploring it. I, I think like this kind of handoff of autonomy is really important. And then I think the other one for me is that Everything we do, certainly in my lab and in just about all the labs I've encountered um, around MIT doing HCI, human computer interaction, they're doing something extremely old um, hmm. in a polished, newer way. Um, if I'm doing dream incubation, then the Cree and the Deniza and the Asclepian uh, dream temples, then I'm going back to ancient Egypt, um, then I'm, 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 I'm going to... Um, uh, uh, just this like vast, totally complicated peripheral um, literature, which is, yeah, unscientific in a sense. Um, but also if something has survived for thousands of years as a tradition, it's a pretty serious kind of science if you're talking about making meaningful human experiences. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't have a great answer except this idea of handing off autonomy to your um, user subject, um, having a real humility about the difference between mechanism and mind, and then having a humility about this notion of newness. Um, I think that, uh, techno optimism doesn't work so well if you're not enamored of the new, um, yeah. and it would be really wonderful if techno optimism didn't work so well. Um, so I think I'm mm. interested in making sure people know that, um, I'm somebody doing something which has been done 
um, for thousands of years. And this is kind of a cheap, easy way to get into a state of mind that people used to work really hard to get into. And that makes it pretty heavy. And that means I don't really know where we're going. And that means I should really trust you with your mind. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's but it. I think there's like so much interesting stuff there where, you know, uh, well, first of all, I guess anything, any subject we approach, each individual will come in with their own experiences and biases clearly. Yeah. But what you do that is different than what's happening out there. Out there, there's already like a, it's not a brief, it's a prepared marketing uh, you know, advertising uh, engine that is geared to be profitable, scale, and all of that. And so the messaging they come with is not like, what is happiness to you is, I'll show you if you're happy, yeah. right? So that is even like a total, that's the, and, you know, then you, you're kind of like, well, okay, if this is monitoring my happiness, oh, I wasn't happy today, I'm happy today, or I'm smiling now, so I feel slightly happy. But maybe if you were to just imagine, in your view, how, what happiness looks like, that would actually make you feel happy in the moment, mm -hmm. right? And so that what you said in terms of like, handing over like autonomy, I think that is something that is not uh, done, especially mm -hmm. like in the commercial sense right mm. like so uh, and i guess it's hard for a product to do a salesy pitch and say like let's see like what whatever this product is for you you know like explore what it means to you they mm. have to come in with a marketing message and that sort of already becomes not only biased but um i don't want to say i don't know if maybe at some points manipulative but yeah, it, totally. yeah and like they they come in with an agenda where in your case you're like okay dream of this and so that is more i want to say more honest research because we all you know like we also think about like how we perceive on the outside if we do some tests while we're like fully conscious maybe we'll say some things we don't really mean we tend to lie in surveys or we mm. have a certain opinion of ourselves that, you know, may not be true. So all tests out there, are, you know, also we don't know how reliable they are, mm. but when you're dealing with subconscious, it's almost I like you would know better than this, but how do you like, is it that, <coughs> does that make it a more honest research about a subject? Number one is my question. Like if you, uh, go to people and you're, let's say, doing a survey, you ask questions about, I don't know, what do you think of the current president? And then people give answers. And then you're uh, in the subconscious, you're saying dream of our current president and how they dream mm. might be a more honest response mm. is what I'm assuming. So do you think like, this exploration could lead to more honest, I guess, like data collection? But mm. what does that mean in terms of privacy or people willing to be wanting to share their real selves, I guess. Great. Yeah. I think there's a lot there. Um, to the first point about telling people that they're happy yeah. versus asking them um, and that sort of feedback cycle. Just one, one quick point, I think, is that the, the most reliable effect uh, in pharmacology is the placebo effect. It's Mm. Um, it's not an SSRI. It's not an anti-anxiety medication. It's belief. That's right. the most powerful thing we can do to ourselves, And it lasts for a long time. Um, and it's hard to root out and you can absolutely use it to your advantage. There's, um, some really nice research, um, from Carol Dweck and Ellen Langer, which is kind of in pop psychology now, um, called the, the growth and fixed mindset literature. Um, which is basically this idea that if in early education you give somebody the idea that when something is difficult, it's because you need to work harder and grow into it, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to giving them the idea that when something is difficult, it's kind of fixed, it's always going to be hard for them and they should probably try something else. Mm -hmm. um, those two differentiators, and they were thinking about it um, with many applications, but one of them was, for instance, like mathematics um, and how young girls and boys are treated differently in the classroom. This is always going to be hard for you. Maybe you're an English student. Um, mm. Try harder. You're great at this. Come on. Um, the rippling effects of those across years um, are hugely powerful. And 
So I would um, absolutely take seriously the effect of somebody telling you you're happy or not happy. I would take it seriously as a tool um, and I would take it, mm. take it seriously as a threat. Um, and I think that that doesn't at all mean it shouldn't be explored. Um, but I think it does mean that because there's this weird, for me, a sort of weird sense that, that we look for advice and self-concept mostly from outside of ourselves as opposed to from within, I think, um, how, whether, whether I'm beautiful or whether I'm smart or et cetera, whether I'll succeed. Um, I think that there has been um, some sense of overlooking the quiet kinds of influence these technologies that we form our self-image with, my Facebook mm. profile, my Instagram profile, et cetera. Um, that feedback loop, I make it, it makes me. I make it, it makes me. Um, and, and so I think it's just a, a big reminder of the power of belief there and that so many of these tools are, are basically tools for believing in a certain limited aspect and scope of your personality. Um, yeah. And yeah, so that, that's just to the, to, the, to the first piece on belief. And then um, the piece on honesty, I think, is really interesting. Um, we obviously have a lot of trouble telling when people are being honest. Our, mm -hmm. our um, political polling doesn't work very well. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think the dream space, one of its main uses therapeutically is that it's um, an extremely hard space to hold back um, your thinking. So there's a, a thing we talk about called metacognitive capacity, which is the degree to which you can monitor your own thoughts. Mm. Um, so think about this, you're in a brainstorming session and there's this kind of focal idea in the middle, but then there are these pretty weird peripheral ones. And then way out there, there's one which is like maybe kind of offensive and pretty strange. And I don't think I should say it. And the kind of interesting thing is those, that internal monologue um, isn't just something you say to other people. You don't stop yourself from speaking literally. You stop yourself before you speak. Mm -hmm. And so if you follow those rings outward in, times, in, in, in terms of um, self-censorship, there are these whole layers of meaning that you don't look at because you don't even let them come into the fovea of attention because you have this amazing ability to self-censor. Um, and that's because your job while you're awake is to focus on the most obvious solutions for the fastest, most efficient problem solving. So if you think about this in terms of something very simple, like, like if I'm making, um, if I'm making a cup, um, I'm pretty damn sure I'm gonna make a circular cup. I don't particularly know why. Um, it'd be really fine for my cup to be square. <laughs> I'm not gonna do it though. Um, and it's gonna be really hard for me to think of it. And so there's this, there's this sense in which while I'm awake, my job is to solve problems hmm. incredibly efficiently. Um, I can't go through the world like wondering whether my table is going to be soft or hard. I've seen a wooden table before. Most recent association, wood, it's hard. I can put stuff on top of it. I don't have to ask any questions. My socks, they go this way. My feet, they go forward. That's how my mind works. When you're asleep, there's interestingly not a neutralizing effect of that close association. There's a full reversal where it's easier for your brain to make long distance associations than it is for it to make short distance associations. So this, this notion of how we associate and how we pattern map, which is how we build our model of the world, which is how we understand it and project understanding onto it, that totally reverses when you're asleep. And that's why your dreams are absolutely strange, but totally unsurprising. Why does it reverse it? Is it trying to explore the most efficient and correct path for your awake self? Yeah. So I think, I think the why is always a weird question when we're talking about the mind and experience, because you can talk about it from an evolutionary psychology perspective, um, but then you have to make a, a lot of leaps in terms of, for instance, our similarity to animal models, which like, I don't mm. like to make. And you can talk about it um, uh, from uh, uh, what it does for you, but that's not a why. Um, that's a, that's a why it would suck if it didn't do the thing, which is, which is different as a question. But, um, so I'll say just b before answering, uh, in, in my way that people don't know why we sleep to start with. It's it's funny. It was a funny question. Like <laughs> it, it, it does kill you not to sleep, but that's yeah. not why we sleep. Um, I don't know. It, why is it, why is it, why is a funny question? Um, 
But um, the answer that I like best is from my professor, who's Bob Stickgold, and has a book coming out on this actually, um, called oh. When Brains Dream, um, which is specifically about this notion that when we're asleep, our job is to take our world model and expand it. I've absorbed mm -hmm. some information. Um, I've met you, Pinar, and I have another friend with the same name. And so even though I'm not thinking of it right now, my job is to think of the two of you sitting at a table together, having dinner. I wake up, I think, huh, actually that association from my childhood memory, which I didn't pull up during the day, is a useful one and I'm gonna catalog it. I'll also think of a thousand other mm. associations which are useless to me. So I think basically for me during the day, I'm gathering information, I'm solving my practical short distance um, uh, essential problems. Um, at night, I'm exploring and I'm experiencing and I'm expanding. It's a completely different mind and a, a, a different kind of model making. Such a, such fun mindset though. Like mm, yeah. <laughs> the fact that we skip that, you know, in our like day, awake selves. It's crazy. And then we're on our, like all, like, it seems like most of the cool stuff that the brain does, I don't want to say most, you know, it is for survival in the end, like mm. on our day to day is being efficient. But like the fun is like when we, when it's unkind, like I, I, I'm also like fascinated, you know, like we see so many dreams and in the more very morning we remember it. And then mm -hmm. like, and then we totally forget about it. And like, I, and I, not to forget, I would tell a friend or tell my husband, you know, mm. like, oh, I saw about this. And then next day, even though I said it verbally out loud, I still would forget it. And then I'm like, why is it so, has to be so secretive? You know, like yeah. all this exploration or interesting other scenarios we think about life. Why does it have so, to be very right. So I think this is an, um, also maybe, uh, a, a totally common, but maybe a misuse of the word forget, um, mm -hmm. in the sense that you've learned a lot about physics. Um, you've learned a lot about what happens when you bounce a ball on the ground. But when you drop the ball, you're not pulling up a model of all the memories of a ball having bounced of different types and colors on different mm -hmm. floors that you've ever had and saying, this is what I expect to happen. Um, instead, you're just not surprised when the ball bounces in the way that it should. But the fact that you are surprised when a ball bounces in a way that it shouldn't shows that at all times you're projecting an understanding onto the world. It's an unconscious understanding until it needs to be updated. So this is what people talk about when they're talking about model updating and expectation. Um, the dream, I don't think, is forgotten. The dream hmm. is quiet and cautious until it doesn't need to be anymore. Um, in, the mm. sense, in the sense that your emotional associations are tied to your dream content and um, REM. And when you wake up the next day, after having had some conversation with somebody at night and you wake up the next day feeling differently about them when you make eye contact with them, that's you remembering your dream. Hmm. It's not you remembering the explicit content of the dream because the content of the dream isn't the point. It's how it feels and how that feeling changes you. In the same way, that I think the content of a classroom isn't really the point. It's how it changes you and it changes your world model. And even though you might not remember the instance of learning, you're a different person when you walk out and see the world in a new way. So I think it's about carrying those experience as projections. And it's not necessarily um, forgetting so much as these things are not meant to be consciously recalled until they are um, either failing and need updating, um, or they're just so much fun that you wanna step back into that particular model exploration. How, so to as it's like an analogy or maybe like the process let's say the brain on a sleeping mode is ex exploring researching like looking into all these like different models and then generates actionable insights for your awake self and mm -hmm. then acts and behaves based on those insights from its research from sleep yeah i think that's i think that i think that i think that's a totally fair analogy and i think one thing which I'm really kind of excited about is um, there's a sense that the, I, the dream is dismissed as a concept and especially as a research object. Um, it is dismissed because it's too Freudian. It's dismissed because it's too fluffy. 
Um, <laughs> uh, it's dismissed because it freaks people out. Um, and yeah, I was going to ask about that. I think that there's this notion that people have that what we need to do to change behavior and better the world is to, for instance, um, let's enact more policies so people act more fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense is that what you need to change to change the world is change people's world model. Um, that if you think, for instance, um, I was, I'll, I'll say two things which might seem sort of disjointed. Um, there's a concept of the, the landscape of fear, which I like a lot, um, which is this notion that, um, for instance, when wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone Park, mm-hmm. um, there's this um, effect of the rivers eventually starting to bend. And people say, how do wolves make a river bend? Um, and it's because when you introduce wolves, elk have more babies because they're afraid of predation, but they move more, which means they graze less, which means willows grow taller, which means beavers have shelter and food, which means the rivers start to bend. Um, wow. But the interesting thing is that the effect of the psychological concept of a predator possibility has more ecological effect than the actual direct killing by the predator. Wow. Um, so. There's a sense in which the model of the world makes the world as much as these kind of direct effects. There's this other thing I was reading, which I think is the same thing, which is about street level bureaucrats. So it's talking about police officers, grant approvers, um, uh, uh, loan officers. Um, And it's this notion that because we have so much policy and it's so draconian, it's so difficult to sift through, we're left with a system where at the high level, we make a bunch of rules, but then at the street level, people actually interact with folks. What you're left to is actually basically people's discretion when they interact with people. So we think it's this notion of organizational model, but hand to hand and head to head and foot on the ground and doing the work, it's it's actually world model that drives the change and drives the interaction. Hmm. Um, And so I've been thinking more and more about the dream as an idea of my internal world, I, I see it, I explore it. There's things I don't want to see. Maybe I have some kind of bias, which I don't want to see. I will see that thing in my dreams. Suppressed thought returns in dreams. Hmm. In the Freudian sense, it, it, it returns in dreams. You can show it experimentally. If you try to tell people to forget certain words from a list, those are the words that come back in that dream. What we push down bubbles up. And so as a way to explore your world model, if you think that your world model is what builds your world, I think dreams are incredibly useful. The mm-hmm. fact that they've been overlooked, I think basically points to this idea that a lot of us don't want to see how we see ourselves and don't want to see how we see the world. And what dreams do is they put them in full immersive color, sound, smell. Yeah, You can't look away. Um, so yeah, I, I think we ignore them to our peril. Um, and it's a sort of, sad thing that uh, introspection is ridiculed and unscientific. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we've seen the damage, even like you, there's a lot of like books around this on like parenting too, like you not addressing your own emotional or family traumas actually reflect onto how you're raising your own child, right? So you not recovering from that experience, aware or not aware, um, actually has impact on how you raise your own child, even if that's not the way you want to raise that child, right? So like, clearly, there is a lot of benefit of emotional um, analysis of yourself, which we not only are not educated enough in it, but also we don't have the time for it now, like so many things work against us, where it seems like the dream space where, where it's so free and you're not shy about saying something or admitting something or exploring further even, uh, seems like an amazing space to do that exploration, analysis, and maybe the insight or the action for your daily life would could result in the recovery of it if you live 20 different scenarios in your dream. Mm. Um, and see how that might, those might pan out. And you're kind of like, oh, but I don't want to be like that. Like that's your insight in the end. Like maybe that affects your um, day to day or even helps you recover from some things that you don't even, or think you don't yeah. remember, as you said. And, and I think there are the practicalities certainly in, in terms of um, 
therapeutic insight, for instance. I'm working mm -hmm. on a PTSD study right now and, and working with nightmare content with, hmm. with folks, which is useful. Um, but in a, in a simpler sense, I think that seeing that you are many people um, in the sense that when, for instance, you um, enter stage one sleep, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to be a flexible, divergent thinker. Um, that there will be moments where you have what people call a loss of ego boundaries, where it's very easy for you first person to inhabit the body of another person, inhabit an animal, inhabit an object, to switch perspectives. I think this notion that you are variably more or less emotional, more or less creative, um, the fact that everybody every night is delusional, that everybody yeah. every morning is amnesic. Um, I think there are some 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 real links to be drawn between um, people and those they dismiss as peripheral, whether those people are dismissed because they're um, insane or counterculture. I think that, um, yeah, the dream space is a really fertile space to show yourself that there's some um, uh, breakthrough in breakdown. Um, yeah, and, and, and like that catharsis. Not all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so I think that there are definitely those kind of more practical insights, the, that therapeutic piece, certainly. Um, mm. but I think there's this other piece, which is just like, you're dirtier and more non-dual than you think you are. And things are muddled up in there. Um, you're not as simple as you think you are. And you give yourself, you should give yourself more credit than putting on an EEG and determining you're happy or not happy. Mm. You should give yourself more credit than thinking you, you should be optimized in the way that the 10,000 other customers of this device should be optimized. And that there's a notion of optimization at all. And that yeah. Utopia is outside and it's in California and it's hot and it's full of gold, as opposed to it's, it's innervated and it's intervention and it's confusing and it's all mixed up. Um, I, yeah, I think brains are uh, kind of, yeah, like, like, like I think um, they're productive muddling. <laughs> well, for, for sure. Um, but so, okay, let's talk about more like the logistics of it. So in such mm -hmm. a free space where there's no boundaries, you're basically a hundred different things that you can't even imagine about yourself. Mm. How do you incubate the dream? Like, how are you going to, how do you make sure I dream about a fork? That's already like fascinating to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's so, it's so Walk easy. me through it. <laughs> no, it's so easy. Um, I do the same thing that my mother did to me when I was a child, um, which is I, I wait for, um, people call it um, the, the hinterland, the borderland, the marshy space, the liminal, the semi-lucid. Um, mm. I'm waiting for the period where um, the chemicals which started dream are already spreading through your brain and the um, neurophysiology of REM sleep is beginning, um, but where you're not so deep into sleep that you have something called thalamic gating, where your hearing gets cut off. Um, mm. And so it's this funny moment where people are one foot in the dream and one foot out and where they can still hear, but where they're not processing things in the same way they would when they're awake. And you just whisper to them and that's it. Um, and so we made a... <laughs> device which tracks and looks for that period of time um, and then uh, has a recording um, audio and uh, speaker device um, and it uh, gives you different parameters and you say, I think I want to go this deep this many times for this many minutes and it mm -hmm. tracks, speaks, listens and that's it. Wow. Then how unhealthy it is to fall asleep like in front of tv like you're so like sure. worked out yeah. like you're working at night you know like you're then you know the last mm. thing you saw was i don't know uh, like we're an architecture studio a building sketch that you're doing of course like how unhealthy is all of that then? of course i mean so so i think one of the great things about this kind of work i'm just plugging in my charger one sec sure oh. um And um, I think one of the great things about this kind of work is this idea that you 
bring up a lot of questions about privacy and autonomy mm. that you should already be asking yourself. Um, I think you should be asking yourself about the red notification buttons, buttons, buttons on your cell phone. I think you should be asking yourself about um, how many highway ads you drive by and then how many you remember by the end of the drive hmm. and where they go. Because it's not like you didn't see them. Um, I, I think we should be asking ourselves like, why we think it's acceptable for as much advertising program is, 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 is put into like the artwork of movies and television. Um, I, I think all of these are really relevant questions about privacy and autonomy. But for some reason, we accept them during the day. If the same thing happens yeah. to you at night, though, if people start whispering advertisements to you at night, suddenly people get all up in arms and they say, hey, like my environment has some influence over me and I don't have complete control or even consciousness of how it's changing the way that I think and behave, which is true while you're awake. During the night, maybe because it's a new idea, maybe because people feel more vulnerable, um, people are like, luckily, I think, asking those questions about privacy. Um, and, and, and so I think that um, how unhealthy it is to fall in front of the, asleep in front of the TV, um, I think really depends on how unhealthy you think it is to stay awake in front of the TV. Um, <laughs> True. Uh, and, and like, yeah, definitely those things um, I expect would slip into your dreams. Um, but also like your dreams come from your memories and your memories come from your daily experience and you should form your daily experience in a way that makes you feel like you're in control of what you're thinking. Um, I have a lot of trouble um, watching TV shows and not having them completely change how I feel for the day. Um, oh, sure, yeah. And I don't know if I should feel some kind of way about that. Um, but I think that I would if I was having bad dreams about them. But they're not really that different, the notion of bad thoughts and bad dreams. There's a real, really nice literature, which is about um, the continuum between daytime mind wandering, hmm. the moments during the day when, when, when you're not in control of the stream of your thought and where you wander to a place or an association um, and the doorway into dreaming where you wander when you're in bed, just falling asleep. And then the content of dreams and then the emotion the next day. And then the content of your mind wandering and current concerns. These are, uh, the, these are a total continuum. Um, and I think wow. that there's yeah. like, uh, yeah, I really, I, I don't know. And, and like, I, I think that that, that seems sort of, um, hand wavy, but just to give you a specific sense of it, um, sleep, for instance, is not something that only happens when you're unconscious or in bed. Um, when you have an attentional lapse during the day. Oh, true. Yeah. There's a good chance that you're having something called a micro sleep, which is where a very specific part of your brain goes to sleep. Not all of your brain has to go to sleep and then you lose attention. Huh. In the same sense that when you work very hard on something specific during the day, for instance, you work on a lot of math, at night, you're going to have the most high amplitude recovery sleep in that part of your brain. Hmm. There's a communication bidirectionally between sleep and wake. Sleep enters the day, wake enters the night. That's true for dreams and a continuum with mind wandering. The borders between the two are really um, dissolving. And I think that because of that, you get to ask some nice kinds of questions about what I'm putting in my head when, how it's changing me. And yeah, if I should care or not. So interesting. Well, where do you see, I don't want to say ideal, but like, what would be an amazing, um, I guess, research you see that is growing more in the intersection of, I guess, like our sleeping selves, how it affects our awake selves, or like about dreaming, like, I, I guess, like, what would be your dream about the dream <laughs> incubation? Yeah, um, right. Um, I'm, I'm having a lot of trouble thinking about how to scale um, any kind of technology that we're working on. And so um, right now, um, this is this week, it'll probably be different next week. Um, <laughs> right now, I've been reading um, Stuart Brand and I've been... Um, uh, uh, reading Andre Breton, and I've been thinking about this marriage of 
the dream and reality and this idea of staying hungry and staying foolish. I, I think that um, right now I'm thinking about big, cheap games that are actually ways to get you to know yourself, this kind of um, a play that breeds philosophy and um, this idea that uh, instead of handing you a device which you need to pay for and are maybe going to get addicted to and which you think, wow, like this person had to study a lot to mm. make it and so they must know something about me, like blah, like scratch all that. Um, I've been thinking about um, right now just just recipe books and instruction art. Um, and ah. so what I'm making now is um, what I'm calling a cookbook, which I'm really excited about. And I'm calling it a cookbook because I think there's a really humble approach to saying, um, this is a recipe. You're probably going to mess with it. It's going to be different in your kitchen than mine. I hope it becomes a tradition. Here are the ingredients so that you can mess with them. And it takes this. I like thing. that. Thank you. It takes this thing, which is cohesive. It says a flan. I don't know how to make a flan. It says, you do know how to make a flan. You know what sugar is. You know what eggs are. You just put them together. And so I think the job for good neuroscience good sleep neuroscience, dream neuroscience, I used to study meditation, good whatever, is to take yeah. an experience, break it down into mechanisms, and then hand them back to you. Not say we've completed the picture, we've told you everything, but say, this is what you want to play with if you want to play with this. If you want to play with meditation, maybe play with your sleep cycle, maybe play with the soundscape, maybe play with your breath rate, your mm. heart rate. Um, if you want to play with dreams, I don't know. You could try beta blockers. You could smoke a bunch of weed. You could drink certain tea. <laughs> yeah. You could play with some specific things. Um, and so it, it, what I'm doing now is basically writing um, a mix of instruction art um, and, 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 and then these more mechanism-based explanations of the experience which will rise out of it. Um, and I think that that to me is a kind of answer for how to scale things up. One, because it's, I think, easier to believe in books these days than anything else. Um, I want to be as distant from the internet as I can be. Um, <laughs> and two, because I think it's pretty easy to put a PDF online. Um, but, but I think it's it doesn't really lose... hard for me. Well, yeah. sorry to interrupt, say, but say, say. I, I love it because it doesn't lose what you originally said about autonomy. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, yeah. that's like the most important thing behind it like you give your you share your knowledge and share in a way like saying okay this may affect you like this but i don't know you're you mm. like that's sort of like no like marketing message no brainwashing like all of that i think it makes it a very genuine product i would hope so yeah and i think there's there's a notion um which i'm wrestling with and and maybe i'll get over um but i feel like there's not a way to make, for instance, large scale hardware, which does some kind of physiological monitoring and feedback without giving people a really limited sense of who they are and a really inflated sense of who you are. And I think both of those are doing an injustice to the kind of understanding of the human. Um, and, 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 and I think that you don't need to engage in either um, that deflation or inflation if you're handing off recipes to people. And um, yeah. yeah, I, I, I guess I, I guess I think that, um, well, yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so I have, before we um, get your advice to anyone who's trying to push boundaries or explore um, unexplored territories, I have, Three uh, quick questions that I want to fire away, which are either like I'm selfishly interested in or Great. I have a certain hypothesis and I want to see what you think about it. Cool. Um, well, number one and the quickest one, I guess, what did you thought? Of, what did you think about the movie Inception? Mm. Um, I think it's great. Uh, we actually had uh, uh, Jonah Nolan, um, one of the Nolan brothers. Um, yeah. Uh, come and visit our lab recently and, and speak in our class. Um, and I, I think that many people think the job of scientists and um, technologists is contemporary. And I think that um, the job of scientists and technologists is totally um, framing the past and framing the future. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really doing the same thing 
that Inception does. It's, it's not saying, here's this device. It can change your dreams. You should buy it. Um, yeah. It's saying, there's a part of you you don't quite know how to speak to. And there is a language that it speaks. And I just want you to be curious about it and think about a world where it did speak a little louder and you did listen a little better. Yeah. Um, it, uh, uh, it says, it says um, when you set your alarm for 8 a.m. and you wake up at 7.59 a.m., who woke you up? Was hmm. it you? You weren't there. And if you were awake and I told you to shut your eyes for eight hours and tell me when it was one minute before the eight-hour time limit, would you be able to do it? Absolutely not. So who is? And where are they in your head? And how do you talk to them? And how do they know what 8 a.m. is? How do they have a concept of time? Who told them? Um, huh. Like, it, it, I think it, it's, it's question posing and future framing in the same way that Inception does. Um, we, made a, we made a tiny sci-fi movie also called Cocoon um, about um, tiny, about the world where our, our technologies were used more broadly. Um, yeah. it's, it's more dystopian than utopian dream. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Inse I, I loved it. Um, I think it's great. Um, I was not allowed to use the word inception in my papers, <laughs> though. I was told that pretty explicitly by my advisors. <laughs> but I think it's also interesting, like we talked about how, um, you know, technology coming out there and is trying to scale where they, how they positioned in the movie was like, it was a high end service. You know, yeah. it was like a very luxury product. Like totally. they had no interest in scaling. It became like, it was even like, you know, a service for political agendas or personal mm -hmm. rich people or whatever it is. But I think that approach was really interesting. So that's why I was curious. Yeah. Um, second question I have, totally unrelated. Uh, but this is a hypothesis I have and I want to I see what you think about it. Yeah, shoot. Deja vu's. Mm. I think there are things that we've dreamt of before, like oh, an a scenario that we explored in our heads and suddenly we came across it in life and we thought, we think we saw it before and I think we saw it in our dreams. Like that's my, not theory, hypothesis. <laughs> what do you think? I think it's a great theory. Um, <laughs> I think it's a great theory. Uh, yeah. Let's see. What do I think of deja vu? I mean, I guess I think that they are incomplete memories. Um, Let's see, I don't know if I have anything useful to add, but um, I will say that there's some really nice research from a guy named Susunu Tonogawa, he's a Nobel Prize laureate, who researches the engram, which is um, this idea that memory has a physical seat. Mm -hmm. um, my memory of this conversation has a, a cluster of neurons and I need to find it. Mm. Um, and one of the interesting things um, that uh, he's able to show is that when you make a memory, you don't just make one path to that memory. You make multiple paths to that memory. Those paths can disintegrate, essentially. They can become unmyelinated um, if they're unused. And so I often think of deja vu as um, I've traveled down one of multiple paths to a memory, but it's just not quite a myelinated one. And so something strike something else and I get halfway, I don't quite get there. And so I get this feeling of familiarity. Um, I think that there's a nice tie into the dream world because um, there's, there's something called a feeling of rightness. And there's a, actually a part of your brain, often it's not a part of your brain that does a thing, it's the brain, it's networks, but mm -hmm. there's a part of your brain which seems to underlie feeling of rightness. And if you've ever been in a lucid dream where you wake up, that's the same piece. You're in it. It feels a lot like deja vu where you're like, something feels familiar and wrong. <laughs> and, then, and then that feeling for me is what triggers a reality check where I look mm. at my hands or I try to read some text and it doesn't quite work. And I say, this is a dream. But it always comes from the same feeling as deja vu. You might think that's happening because yeah. we have a lot of the semantic networks that we have while we're awake but we don't have access to the hippocampus while we're in REM. And so it might be the same sort of, I have the meaning, but I don't I have see. the path to the memory. And that's why a lucid dream feels like a deja vu and a deja vu feels like a deja vu. That is a totally 
off the cuff. I have no idea, but that's just some thoughts. I think. I yeah. know. <laughs> I love those answers. Makes me think more. And I, you know, mine obviously didn't take that much like in-depth um, thinking or research to it. I, I was just like, oh, maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Um, and uh, I guess one quick question. I mean, I guess this is a very long question, but let's try to find a quick answer to it. So mm. obviously, like, and if you read your uh, Harari and he talks about, I think, in the book of 21 Lessons from 21st Century, um, he like talks a lot about like how um, biometric data uh, and that, you know, coupled with, um, I guess, big data or AI and all of that could be to very much our detriment, right? Um, so I feel like what's interesting there though, so biometric data, I mean, it, it reads stuff through hormones, through your like, you know, uh, body temperature, reflexes mm -hmm. or whatever. But then I think it, it is still very detached from dream space. So one uh, question I have, do you think um, dream, I don't want to say a weapon, but dream can be something, uh, dreams can be an area that's sort of, uh, let's say we're forced to wear like biometric bracelets in the future and, or we have chips, whatever, like that scenario happening. Do you think dreams would be a safe space or mm. our only safe spaces at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think dreams are absolutely uh, a haven. Um, you um, could write a really simple prison escape handbook by writing a lucid dreaming book. Um, hmm. The notion that we are unfettered entirely in sleep has, um, I think, a lot of, yeah, attractive truth. Um, the other thing, though, I think is that dreams can totally be a prison. They're a prison hmm. if you have repetitive nightmares. They're That's a true. prison if you return to the same place every night. They're a prison if you have a lucid dream every night and you wake up extremely tired, which people do. Um, mm. I think that uh, they have a capacity to be both because they are um, a, a world. And then, I, but, I, but I, I, do, I do really think, um, I think that people are wary of studying dreams for the same reason they were wary of um lsd research that was ongoing in in the uh the, the psychological sciences um i think these are things that blow up your worldview um yeah. and which if you take them seriously make everything while you're awake make a little bit less sense in a productive way um i think that for me the way i think of it is you have um kind of a certain amount of feeling of rightness and sense-making to go around. Hmm. And you can either spread it out across 24 hours, or you can concentrate it and say, the thing that makes the most sense is the eight hours when I'm at work and I'm being productive. Um, and then afterwards, I kind of waste my time and I feed myself until I can produce more things the next day. Um, hmm. Or you can say that, like, maybe that notion of optimization is one that was handed to me and not one I handed to myself. And Maybe it's really productive for me to go uh, uh, ride a bunch of chipmunks like over the Atlantic Ocean at night. Like maybe that's really important in the same way that maybe poetry is really, really important. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I think that dreams in that sense can be a weapon because they'll make anybody into a divergent, creative counterculture thinker. Because um, hmm. that's what they're designed to do biologically. Um, I think they are in the same sense um, because they are so real and immersive and personal. Um, they also absolutely have the capacity to be a, a, a prison and to be weaponized. Hmm. So interesting. And I could see how, especially like systems that, you know, would not like that research, you know, like there is um like, because in systems, there's like a nine, like mind numbing um, approach, right? Like mm. these are the rules, these are regulations, we follow this, this like allows for society to thrive and whatever. And so um, there is this book and, you know, I'm a, I'm a mother of a two-year-old, so I read a lot about these things. And there's a book by Alfie Cohn and he talks about raising rebels. And he, he says like how children need to sort of have this like reflective, re reflective rebelliousness mm. and not just accept everything 
but you know the systems don't like that right which is why there's often promotion almost on disciplining your children um like all these rules like uh, or punishments or incentives and you know uh, praising and all of that um whereas like he's against all of that and he talks about like no like you should raise rebels because they should question things but you know in a respectful way so like it makes me think that of that of you know people if they take the dream seriously and explore all these other things uh in their dreams instead of what we see in our day-to-day um it is kind of rebelliousness right like towards like what is like presented to us so i think that's fair and i I think that there is a um conceptually interesting um i think probably nobody knows um if it's causally interesting but a conceptually interesting link between a lot of those medications which we give to over-medicated children Mm. um, to discipline them and the impact they have on REM and dreams and the way that they make them literally disappear. Um, And so I think there's a a really interesting kind of um, control uh, and complicity is tied to this dreamlessness, um, which is, which is, which is interesting. Um, And in and of itself, and I think that there's, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, this is a, a longer conversation, I think. <laughs> yes, but um, sure. there's 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 a sense in which um, there's this notion which the, the dream has been co-opted, at least in the U.S., where like this idea of the American dream and the suburban dream, um, this idea that a dream could be homogeneous and that people all want the same thing and that to get everybody to a place where they can be in their dream um, yeah. We need to have a certain amount of income, et cetera. Um, as opposed to this idea that um, dreams aren't really that nice most of the time. They don't make that much sense most of the time. You don't like really need a lot of money to have like feet for ears, which is like one of my dreams. It doesn't cost a lot. You don't need a fence for it. Um, and so I think that there's a sense in which the, the, the concept of the dream in and of itself can be used productively to complicate the concept of utopia and the way that the dream has been co-opted, I think, to give people this idea that they all want the same thing, which um, Mm. Milan Kundera writes really nicely about this idea that that, that's what makes totalitarianism and capitalism possible. Totalitarianism is convincing everyone that they have the same dream. Um, So yeah, I'm really interested in, in that kind of productive use of uh, the dream to complicate its, its, its more broad concept. Yeah, I think that's cool. All right, well, thank you so much for answering those. So with my final question, and I guess like oh, yeah. we could have so much longer conversation today. Um, so to anyone who is doing research in a field that um, definitely seems like there's, I mean, all fields, I guess, there are so many things to discover, but you know, in a field that is especially like sometimes maybe overlooked or is people are afraid of, um, they either are trying to do research, uh, explore in that field or make progress in an industry that is very conservative, push boundaries, any of these hardships, right? What would be your advice to these people? Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that, um, I think many of these questions are just sort of cuff in this one. Maybe I should have thought about. Um, there's, there's a, a really nice kind of humility in the brain sciences. I think because um, there's a sense that everybody is a participant witness or a participant observer in experiments. Hmm. They are a first person trying to get a third person view on a first person who has a view of themselves in the third person objective process. Oh it's my God. like. I'm trying to experiment on you, but there's a me and there's a you and you know that I'm there trying to experiment on you. It is a, it's an absolute mess. And so in my mind, it's not really science. In my mind, it's kind of just empathy, just organized empathy. Like you put your empathy in a spreadsheet and you had some tools to think about another person when they think about you. Um, and so um, I, I guess that makes uh, a really useful change where you don't take yourself as seriously and you take the person sitting across from you, who's supposed to be a cell in a spreadsheet, much more seriously, if you think that this kind of epistemology is necessarily interactive, it's necessarily environmental, it's necessarily contextual. And I think that kind of humility gives you a real weapon against people who tell you that's not 
it's not how it's done. Um, mm. And I think that for me, I'm really interested in this concept of levels of analysis where, um, where physicists once dismissed chemists because they're at a higher level of analysis where um, the study of the brain dismissed the study of the mind because it's at a higher level of conceptual analysis, higher in the sense of emergence and networks. Um, and I think that to be a really good question asker, you have to be a really good traveler among levels of analysis. And I'm um, mm. using this level of analysis from um, David Marr, who writes really nicely about this. But the idea um, that questions need to be asked on multiple levels. And if somebody's telling you that they shouldn't be, it's probably because they're defending their tenure um, and, and, and their niche. And like, I, I, I just, um, I don't know. I, I was told by a professor when I was starting this that I... Um, that I was taking too many mushrooms if I thought that this was science. Um, really, that's what he said to me. And I said, that's really aggressive and probably a good sign for me. Um, to go ahead and explore. Yeah, to like get out there. And I don't know. Um, what do I? Yeah. Um, so take I, people's yeah. advice with a grain of salt, I guess. Like maybe that's like one of the advice. Gosh. Um, I, I, I mean, I mean, to be frank, I think that just nobody knows what they're talking about ever. <laughs> um, and I think people especially don't know what they're talking about if they're talking about the brain and mm. anybody who's a good neuroscientist will admit that. And that means that you just have free leave to do something. As long as you're doing it ethically, you pose any question you want to, um, for people in the brain sciences, I think that is, um, advice that can scale. Um, and I think that for people who are interested in these kinds of questions and are not in an academic setting, I think the cool thing to understand is that as an experiencer, you know much more about your brain than any neuroscientist ever will. Hmm. And that's a really legitimate kind of knowledge production about the brain. Introspection has brought us so much that there, there is, and um, I don't say this to dismiss the field that I'm in, um, but my professor, Rebecca Sachs, said this in our class um, last semester. Um, it's extremely hard to find any piece of information from neuroscience's biomedical engineering that tells us more about ourselves than introspection and psychology already did. Hmm. Basically just restating things in terms of mechanism. And I think that, yeah, you just have to be really careful when somebody's trying to sell you something so that you'll buy their tool. Um, whether they're selling you an fMRI or whether they're selling you a brain scan of yourself as a kind of self-understanding. Um, I, yeah, I think I have no advice for people <laughs> except that um, everyone's shooting in the dark. So have fun. <laughs> but I love that. It's so honest and actually like, you know, it's, it sort of goes back to what you originally said of like autonomy, like this is what I know, but mm. you know, your own brain the best. So like, keep mm. at it, you know, so I, I love that. And thank you so much for this. You know, I think this could have been a whole day conversation, such an interesting topic, topics that you're working on. Please keep us posted on all, you know, new updates and research that you're doing. And uh, we look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Puna. Thanks very much for your time. That is this week's episode of What's Wrong With The Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, podcast.whatswrongwith.xyz, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can now also watch our podcast on YouTube. You can find a link in the description below. If you found value in this show, we would appreciate if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about us. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thank you.